from Omaha Public Radio, I'm Emily Chen Newton, and you're listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, the podcast that is part history and culture and part science and all about how the Midwest has influenced the United States as a whole. But here's the thing, I'm not from the Midwest, so in every episode I do the research and then get together with someone who is from here. We explore the stories of famous persons, products, inventions, social movements, and cultural beliefs that got their start right here in the middle of America. And on today's episode, the American Broadcaster Voice. And he's like, and coming up, the news. And you're like, why did he say it like that? Like, he could have said, you know, the news. The sentences go down at the end. And it's very matter of fact. But if you listen very closely, you'll notice that we're saying words kind of weird. Live from Gifford Park, this is... Okay, so there is undeniably a news radio voice that we as Americans have come to expect when we tune into the radio in our car or turn on the TV at home. It's a voice that's authoritative, usually lower pitched and stereotypically lacking any obvious regional accent. Where did this voice come from? Well, some people say it comes from right here the American Midwest. Some people say that's because there is no accent here. So if you speak like a Midwesterner, then you speak like you're from nowhere. But is that really true? To dig into this with me is Omaha native and host of Public Radio's Studio 360, Kurt Anderson. Thanks for joining us, Kurt. Hi. Thanks for your time today. Happy to be there. We're here. (laughs) Yeah, right. You are joining me from... I'm actually at this moment in northwest Connecticut, but, you know, not far from New York City. So to begin, we're going to have a little crash course in radio history. Going back to the year 1927, when the Radio Act was reformed, creating the FRC, Federal Radio Commission, determining the need for radio's regulation because of, quote, public interest and necessity. And in that same year, we have the first talkie premiere, a film called The Jazz Singer. So by 1927, we have radio regulated as a public interest and necessity, and we have sound and voice in the movies. And the style of speech you would have heard in the talkies was called the Mid-Atlantic dialect. Here's Todd Hatton, our program director here at Omaha Public Radio, to tell us what the heck that means. It's called Mid-Atlantic because it's, it sounds like it should be somewhere halfway between England and the United States. And interestingly, it was actually the sinking of the Titanic in the Atlantic Ocean that spurred the original Radio Act in 1912 because mishandling of the technology and interference from amateur signals were blamed for the disaster, showing the need for regulation. So mid-Atlantic accent refers to an accent from this fictitious place, an island maybe, that if it existed would be in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. And if this island existed, then this is how the inhabitants would speak. That's the idea. As a female example of this, this is Judy Garland as Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz talking to the Cowardly Lion in 1939. It's bad enough picking on a straw man, but when you go around picking on poor little dogs... My goodness, what a fuss you're making! Why, you're nothing but a great big coward! So this is the voice that we would have heard before that Midwestern broadcaster voice was prominent on the airwaves. You know, and more than than Judy Garland, I might... Uh, say somebody like Catherine Hepburn was really that kind of mid-Atlantic, virtually English. And and the Franklin Roosevelt, Catherine Hepburn kind of voice was upper class, among other things. Right, because there was this very distinct class with that kind of the mid-Atlantic voice. Some people say that it was a holdover from British rule, as well as the fact that when we moved from the silent movies into the talkies, that the voices needed to match the elegance and the affect that was previously portrayed just through the glamorous faces. So keep in mind that we have started with this mid-Atlantic, very upper-crusty-sounding voice, and that's what we're getting in the original talkie films. But then the voice of the silver screen begins to change as we have the entrance of a striking number of successful actors from the Midwestern states 
later in the 1930s through the 50s, and their presence is credited with encouraging the change of that acceptable American voice. I mean, just to name a few, we have Gary Cooper from Montana, Henry Fonda, Nebraska, Marlon Brando, Nebraska, Paul Newman, Ohio, James Dean, Indiana. I mean, the list goes on and on. Absolutely. And, and, and there were some people who still had distinct regional accents, like Southern accents, Western twangs, or somebody like Judy Holliday from New York City. Right. Another one would have been Humphrey Bogart. I mean, definitely did not have a put-upon mid-Atlantic dialect. And all of those actors on the silver screen begins to offer this new voice that was much more relatable and appealing to the public. Although, ironically, Humphrey Bogart was, in fact, an upper-class preppy kid from New York City. You know, so you can't, you can't, even, you can't even tell. Right. That's the thing. Like, how you come across versus what you actually are. No, and, and mm-hmm. I know plenty of, I mean, I, you, know, I, you know, I know people who are national broadcasters. My friend Lawrence O'Donnell, why, why not name him? I went to college with him. He's now on MSNBC. He can talk and sometimes does off the air in a, in a really thick Boston accent. But then when he's on the air, he speaks in this more or less accent-free version of English. And, and that's just, you know, what one does when one is on TV, you know? Remember, too, when we have the early days of cinema here in the U.S., they played the newsreels before the movies. So you had an opportunity for direct comparison between those two vocal styles. So when we have some more of these actors coming out compared to what might have still been that um, oratorial mid-Atlantic style, you could compare them side by side in the cinema. And one was obviously more appealing than the other. And it's, it's just funny that that was taken as the way to be a professional broadcaster Where, wherever you were from and from whatever class, whatever your class background was, you were supposed to sound like a slightly upper class Northeasterner uh, before, I guess, before the, the Midwesternism was became the obligatory style. Right. There was something about that that denoted authority in our culture at that time. Right. But then as we do have some more of these Midwestern actors kind of rising to the top, and then on top of that, we have a lot of the heavy hitters from the early days of broadcast who actually came from the Midwestern states. Here's Todd again. You have people like Tom Brokaw, Cronkite, I want to say Chet Huntley. I mean, these are all pretty big names. You know, Walter Cronkite, his people used to call him the most trusted man in America. And then there's Hugh Downs, Eric Severide, Harry Reisner, John Trudell, John Chancellor, Johnny Carson. I mean, there's actually a lot of Johnnies, come to think of it. But but all of these men from here. Yeah, as well as Dick Cabot, another Nebraskan. Clearly in the television age, there were regional voices, but they they were wiped out because, I guess, the decision was made, like, we now have a truly mass medium that everybody everywhere is watching, you know, it was as though we were a country of a lot of dialects and one of them had to be chosen as the national language once we were turned into a a nation, really, by all of us watching television. Right. So you could just be seen as relatable no matter where you were. Exactly. And so another one of those early broadcasters from this region was Merrill Workhoven born in Iowa and eventually becoming chief announcer for the radio and TV stations WOW and WOWT in Omaha. While you may not know his name if you're not from this area, you probably know some of the men he mentored. He was a great mentor to many of the guys who came up through the Midwest. This is Merrill Workhoven's daughter, Melanie, and she's speaking with me over the phone. He mentored Tom Brokaw. He mentored Johnny Carson, and they remained close friends until my dad passed away. And Melanie remembers how diligently her father enforced the proper use of language and pronunciation. When we were kids, if you didn't use a word correctly or pronounce it correctly, you were required to go to the dictionary. And both my parents believed that no matter what your intelligence or what your education If you could speak properly, it was an advantage in whatever you would try to do in your life. And so the question is, then, what does it sound like to speak properly? And really, who decides? Right. Well, and obviously, there's racial, ethnic, and class 
intersections of that. It just didn't become an issue until we had this national medium. It reminds me of this thing I've always been fascinated by, which is that we didn't have time zones in this country until we had trains. Because before trains, like, who cared what time it was in, you know, Omaha versus Los Angeles or New York versus Chicago? It didn't matter. But once trains were running and they could run into each other and you had to have schedules and all that, we had to create this system. And, and I, it, it's, it kind of reminds me of that. In the interest of trying to make us seem all the same, this one thing was chosen. But what was chosen was middle of America accent. So, again, maybe this Midwestern generic accent is, is, seems like a good choice. Uh, well, let's not call it generic, but yes. <laughs> but, but, but sure, yeah. I, and, and frankly, I think it is, and I think it was. The other thing is, however, drive out of Omaha, drive out of Kansas City, and, you know, you hear a lot of accents pretty quickly. So it is, in addition to Midwestern, it is urban versus rural, even within Midwestern, you know? Yeah, there is definitely, it's an urbanized sound. And, I mean, if we... Think about Missouri. I mean, Missouri is, it's a different pronunciation of the state depending on where you are, Missouri or Missouri. And so there's, yep. there's quite a bit of variation. So to find out more, I got on the phone with the man who wrote the book on this. The book is called Making Radio, Early Modern Radio Production, and the Rise of Modern Sound Culture. Here is Sean Van Cor, author and professor at UCLA. I'm Assistant Professor of Information Studies, and I'm the Assistant Director of the Library of Congress's Radio Preservation Task Force. And Sean is going to give us a little more historical context. Throughout the early 20th century, there, there was a, a better speech movement. The idea that you would uplift the population, and that was also shaped by the successive waves of immigration, corresponding uh, xenophobia, um, but radio was embraced by the social reformers as this powerful means of educating supposedly disadvantaged populations, immigrants, working class, rural audiences, and bringing them into the national fold. Uh, trying to train the underprivileged and immigrants and stuff to, to speak better. I suddenly thought, oh, elocution, a thing people taught in school was elocution, to speak well and clearly, which obviously, I, I, I don't know who the last person to have a class in elocution is in the United States, but I, I don't think it's very uh, frequent. No, it's totally changed now. I mean, I feel like I need a lesson in how to use text message language. I mean, <laughs> like the the way that language has changed now and the main, the major forms, they are so quickly evolving now and they do not seem to be based around elocution. Well, because, and it isn't, isn't it weird, and who would have predicted it? 30 years ago or 40 years ago, after uh, generations of radio, television, and telephone, that we would return to this text-based form of forms of communication. And now, in the last decade or so, that has evolved, of course, into the emoji world, which is crazy and kooky and a different form of uh, different dialect altogether. Oh, yeah. And now, you're, you know, we at least have some different skin colors. You don't just have to be yellow anymore in the emoji world. That's true. <laughs> so. That's true. Although sometimes I push too quickly and make a mistake and, and send, send a, a, a racially inappropriate. Oh, no. Then you've made a social statement. <laughs> exactly. And I, I never mean to. And I, but I have children, and they, they, they set me straight pretty quickly on that. Well, thank God. We continue to learn yep. and adapt, and our children keep us honest. So, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to veer us back here. This is in 1927. The National Broadcasting Company, NBC, put out a list of their announcer qualifications. And the list includes things like a college education, selling ability for advertisements, technical proficiency on the switchboard. But that wasn't all they were looking for. They want, uh, and I'm quoting here, a good voice with clear enunciation and pronunciation free of dialect or local peculiarities. So this is network radio. This is uh, the beginnings of a national network system here in the 1920s. The network era does, isn't really fully consolidated until the 30s, but they're starting to build this national network of stations. And they want a voice that will travel, right, that will not be too specifically tied to any one part of the country. Well, and it reminds me that, of course, you know, the, the 1890 or so to 1925 or so, 
was the, the, the previous great giant waves of immigration. And I hadn't thought of that. And, 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 and the fact that radio began really just as that ended, just as that was done, um, I'm sure added to that sense of like, oh, uh, not only let's let's create a standard American English uh, in terms of sound, but especially so given that we have all these people from Europe uh, uh, newly here. Right. So it was this nation building is what he refers to it there. But as a way to I mean, I, I guess in a positive light, it's welcoming a new population, a different take on it would be whitewashing the population that's coming in or, um, you know, just kind of, it seems, it seems not entirely wholesome. But I mean, assimilation was always an explicit American idea. And the fact that the, the assumption was that part of assimilation was everybody should talk the same. Maybe that went too far and maybe it wasn't altogether great. I mean, and is that even possible to have a accent free of those unique things in a region? I mean, when we, just as we were saying, what we have in the Midwest, you have the sh- Chicago. Chicago accent is certainly distinct. Missouri, Kansas, yep. Omaha. I mean, all of yep. these places are supposedly in the same region. Maybe that's also because there's a different thing that's happened in, in this time we're talking about, which is, you know, college education uh, tends to, and, and then urbanization that often follows that, I think reduces geographical as well as class distinctiveness of of accent. Yeah, exactly. All right. So even if there is a long list of broadcasters from the American Midwest, if we can't determine one distinct voice to represent this massive region, then we're going to need some other way to deal with the idea that the Midwest birthed the broadcaster voice. Enter psychology. The big lesson from this is that your brain gets in the way of your ear. This is Dennis Preston. I'm a Regents Professor of Linguistics at Oklahoma State University, and I'm a Professor of Linguistics from Michigan State University, but that's emeritus. I left the frozen north some time ago to not wait around in the snow. And the idea that he is talking about is sometimes called reverse linguistic stereotyping. This concept goes by a few names, but the basic idea is that when we recognize regional tags in someone's language, we associate them with that region. And after forming some belief about their home place, then you hear that particular accent stronger in them. So once I assume that you're from New York, I hear a New York accent in your voice. Most of those stereotypes are, co- are connected with the most vernacular working class varieties. We don't really recognize strong regional accents unless you pick on working class and vernacular style dialects. So according to Preston and others, those regional tags and language are most often associated with working class blue collar speech. And like you were saying, when a broadcaster makes their way through formal training, those rougher edges of blue collar speech are sanded down and those regional patterns are smoothed over. And then this is the speech that we expect to hear in news broadcasts. Now, one of the things that's very interesting about some middle parts of the country, uh, the so-called flyover zone, where people from neither the South nor the East Coast and the West Coast know very much, then it's very, very easy to stereotype that group as kind of whitewashed. So he goes on to say, we just think, oh, normal people live there in the Midwest. So the idea is, because we can't hear any of those regional tags needed to identify a broadcaster, we think, well, they don't sound like they're Southern, they don't sound like they're from California, so we unconsciously toss them into that obtuse category of the American Midwest because it's the region with the least amount of stereotypes associated with it. And that's, of course, where such nonsense terms as general American and such equally stupid beliefs that uh, American uh, national newscasters uh, are all from or try to emulate Midwestern speech. So it's pretty clear by this point that Dennis Preston does not believe in the Midwest birth of the broadcaster voice. And he added this. The voice of national public radio for more than a quarter of a century was Bob Edwards. 
And if you couldn't tell that Bob Edwards was from Louisville, uh, (laughs) then you weren't listening. And it's Louisville, Kentucky he's talking about here. Now, this is an interesting comment on a few levels. First of all, I think that it highlights the difference between what a linguist hears and what the rest of us hear. Uh, So I'm going to play a clip of Bob Edwards himself and just let me know what you think. Dr. Kissinger, as the Watergate cover-up came unraveled, why didn't you quit? Okay, I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, and I would not pick him out as being from there. Yeah, I, no, no kidding. No, because <laughs> no. he's imitating somebody from Omaha. <laughs> um, on the other hand, I mean, Kentucky and Louisville, how many miles from Ohio are you? And Ohio is theoretically the Midwest. Of course, accent, as I've said, as we've said, is, is this combination of geography, class, race, ethnicity, and and then, you know, training. Right. you know, mm-hmm. or, or, or tra- uh, conventions of the medium. And Bob Edwards is quite open about the fact that he worked to change his Kentucky accent in one interview explaining that, you know, he could still pick it up when he goes back home. And so for me, I mean, the question still remains of why do these stereotypes about people with a Southern accent exist in the first yeah. place? And where do they exist? And I, and I know they exist even within the South. Right. Mm-hmm, Even mm-hmm. again, it's it's it, often it's a class thing. It's a different kind of intersectionality, right? Class and and region, and uh, you know the, what is the source of that? I don't know, but it's it's definitely a fact. And and I mean, I think about this coming from Kentucky, going to school in Central Appalachia, and now I am on the radios and I speak like this. And I think at a certain point, is this is this doing a disservice? Oh, fully. And again, there is that, the whole other question of how how are African Americans supposed to speak? Oh, is does she sound too white? Oh, does she sound too black? Which is a whole other fraught conversation of even more more intensely fraught because because questions of race are obviously more uh, intensely fraught. I, yeah, I don't know the answer uh, to any of those uh, questions. But I mean, did you grow up speaking with a Southern accent? I did not. I was raised in Kentucky by two parents from Southern California. <laughs> well, there you go. There you go. There you go. So, no, and, my, yeah. I, and, and having now raised two children in Brooklyn, New York, I mean, and, and, and people, when they went off to college, would say to them, like, well, you don't speak like you're from Brooklyn. And they don't in any way. They, 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 they speak like their Midwestern parents, you know, because, you know, we kept them in a, in a cave where they couldn't learn to speak any other way. But... Uh, when we talk uh, these days a lot, correctly and properly, about about representation and people seeing and hearing versions of themselves on television and in the movies, it is interesting that, you know, Southerners don't see many versions of themselves on broadcast news, on, on television. And that's an interesting fact of American life that, you know, may, 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 may or may not have some kind of political relevance. And there's definitely a social learning component of it. There has been studies done around this. There's a really interesting one done with children in Tennessee and then some northeastern states. And what you see is that as the children get older, their belief in those stereotypes gets stronger. So as they age, they're more likely to say, oh, yeah, with that kind of an accent, he's, he's really not that smart. Yeah. Uh, Professor Dennis Preston says that the roots go back as far as just post-Civil War, when the education system in the American South was severely depressed compared to the North. So that's one idea of what has led us to where we are in terms of that stereotype. But regardless of the roots of these stereotypes, they do exist. So to take a closer look at the way that this particular kind of implicit bias affects people's lives. I spoke with researcher Laura Huang. I am a professor at Harvard Business School, and in my research, I study how uh, people make decisions under conditions of extreme uncertainty and high complexity and how they use um, subtle signals and cues and their perceptions and their gut feel. And Dr. Huang has a personal connection with her research through my childhood, I had observed both of my parents who are immigrants, and both of them came to to this country for grad school and were very qualified, but yet I kept seeing them getting passed over for promotion after promotion after promotion. He never got to even a manager level position, but, you know, kind of took it in stride. Um, he always sort of took it 
as this is this is sort of the tax I pay as being being an American and being in America. But it really was not a, a skill based thing. And I always wanted to test whether or not it was it could perhaps be based on on his accent. While we've been talking about the lack of regional accents in news broadcasts, we're also talking about a lack of foreign accented speech. And Dr. Huang finds that in her research that modern day discrimination is often hidden behind more acceptable terms than it once was. Sort of modern bias, right? It's not an explicit bias. We don't discriminate people against people on that direct factor, right? So it may not be gender or race. But it would be something that's much more acceptable, a criteria such as, you know, how adventurous are they? How likable are they? How influential are they? Things that we can that are much more subtle and subjective, but that are underlying that bias nonetheless. And it's often a, quote, lack of political savvy that is used as that modern day and more acceptable form of discrimination against foreign accented English. Yeah, it is. It is complicated. And then I was thinking as as the professor was speaking about British accents and there aren't that many or haven't until recently been very many British people on American broadcast television. I mean, really, I mean, there's now John Oliver, I think of or I think of Trevor Noah on The Daily Show with his South African accent. But, you know, you think would would be would be less discriminated against than people of other difficult accents. Norwegian accents, or more common and and conventionally discriminated against accents like Spanish ones. But it is, no, for sure it's there. But yeah, it is complicated. And as we are becoming a more ethnically diverse country, we're the highest foreign-born population since 1920, basically, and it's becoming a more interesting issue. Also, when this national Midwestern broadcast voice you're theorizing or tearing down began, In the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, we only had, you know, a a few networks, right? In this age of a gazillion podcasts and a gazillion other channels of broadcasts, um, you'd think it would be that 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 fact of all of these multiple channels of of hearing speech would would tend to do away with the, uh, the, the hegemony of this neutral accent. But there is there's a difference between just being out there, being in the pool and then being the one that's promoted to the top. And that's what we see over and over again with people with thick accents or even just a slight accent. If it's a foreign accent, less likely to be hired in the first place, less likely to be promoted, um, less likely to be seen as competent. They've done studies with doctors all the credentials and letters behind their name. If they have a Chinese accent, they are rated as less competent. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. Yeah. But so we do this and then it's usually hidden behind some other kind of some other camouflage. We wouldn't say it's because he's Chinese, but we say, well, it doesn't seem politically savvy. So that's the excuse that seems to be used against people for their accents. And another argument that's often made is that regional accents or especially foreign accents, are harder to understand and that we have to work harder to process the speech. But Dr. Lor Huang has actually studied this, and she says it may feel that way, but it's not actually the case. We tested exactly for that. So we ran a series of experiments, and the people who had accents um, were able to communicate just as much information, if not more, than the people without accents. So meaning the observers that were listening were able to recall just as much information. They were able to learn just as much. And there was actually no difference. And when we look at a survey of current functional MRI studies that track brain activity, the results are far from conclusive at this point in terms of the the effort of the brain. But one takeaway is that it seems to be when we passively listen to foreign accented English, there is a decrease in activity of key speech areas. But when we listen actively, some studies show that there is an increase in activation. And so some researchers, Dr. Huang being one of them, are currently looking into the idea that maybe when our brain is, quote, working harder, maybe we are actually taking in more information because of that added effort. So we actually listen more attentively and we're activating those areas, receiving more information or just as much information. 
And like you were, you were saying, we're a much more diverse country than we have ever been. And so this is super interesting to think of how the voice of radio and TV broadcast is changing. And maybe some of the regional and foreign accents could help us in some way. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, it makes intuitive sense that, oh, if you have to pay a little more attention, uh, you, you learn better. I, I would love to see. If, I wonder if that's been tested, you know, on, in all varieties. And they've done some of this with text and having people read information with different fonts. And that does show that actually the fonts that are a little bit trickier to understand, you end up taking away more information because you had to try a little bit harder to get it in the first place. Really? So yeah. you're, this is an argument for Comic Sans, everything to be in Comic Sans, right? Oh, I don't know if I can get behind that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, none of this research is, it's not complete or conclusive. And the fact remains that a recognizable accent does face difficulties. Um, however, the literature does suggest that you can counteract this by speaking in a more confident tone. So it turns out, studies are showing us now, that a lower pitch and less variation, in other words, modulation, will not only grant you higher confidence ratings from listeners, but also higher trustworthiness, characteristic of news broadcast. I have to say, the thing that I find very annoying and makes me regard the speaker as lesser is, is too much uptalk at the end of sentences. It's actually a, a way of saying, I'm not confident. I'm just putting this thing out as a question. So I wonder how the, the uptalk uh, figures into that. Oh, it absolutely takes your confidence rating down. I mean, not only does a lower, in general, a lower pitch give you a higher rate of confidence and dominance and authority, but also descending pitches. So dropping the end of your sentence at down as opposed to like you were saying going up at the end because that denotes a question and then in general that higher pitch is not going to do well in terms of portraying confidence or authority well it's interesting because abraham lincoln for instance had a very high-pitched squeaky voice and and he he could impress people in in three-hour debates with stephen douglas and so forth but but like he seems like a guy who in the radio or TV age would not have made it right. because of his high-pitched, squeaky voice. And at know? that time, you actually it was beneficial for speech giving to have a higher-pitched voice because higher frequencies carry better. And so without all this microphone technology that we have now, it, that was actually a beneficial pitch to have. Huh, that's interesting. And also, the mic technology was the major cause for modulation, right? Nobody was trying to override an accent bias, but it was out of a fear of breaking those sensitive microphones, which relied on the carbon granules inside of them to function. So because of these carbon microphones, that really required modulation uh, in the earlier days of radio. This is Sean Van Core again. When their volume increased or they hit higher notes with um, you know, stronger sound energy, would just hit those carbon particles with excessive force and pack them together, and that would freeze up the microphone. And at that point, you could uh, try to manually knock them loose again, or sometimes the mic was simply shot, and you'd have to swap it out for a new one. And of course, later, the microphone technology does progress um, from carbon microphones to condenser microphones, but the habits of the announcers would have stuck around. And the tonal range was even a focus of a study from CBS. This is in 1945. They were really starting to look at this stuff. And the study states that there is a listener preference for a narrow to medium tonal range. So they're really starting, all this stuff is kind of on their mind by this point in history. I'm always struck when I watch old television game shows like the Groucho Marx show, for instance, and when people from the audience speak, because television was still relatively new, they didn't know how to speak in a broadcast way. But there was some point where average Joes suddenly put in front of the camera knew how to speak in a way in the old days they really didn't, which has always been an interesting kind of artifact of that time to me. Yeah, there had to be a social learning over a few decades that taught yeah, exactly. nation exactly. how to exactly. modulate. And, and now the current research on trustworthiness 
is telling us that this kind of modulation that the microphones and other things would have required at the time will increase your trustworthiness factor for speakers. And another element that's coming to light in the science of trustworthiness is harmonics present in a person's voice. If the voice is clearer, so it has more harmonics, less noise, then it's definitely perceived as being more fit or like a signal of fitness. This is Assistant Professor Mary Flaherty from the Department of Speech and Hearing Science, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And therefore, we kind of trust that voice more because it seems physically fit, so it must be mentally fit, or something along those lines is one of the ideas. And it seems to be a pretty similar case in terms of high-pitched voices versus low-pitched voices, like we were saying earlier. So lower voice pitch is generally it's seen as being more competent or more trustworthy could be that it's age-related, be as people get older, their voice pitch does lower, so maybe there's some association with, with older age and, and wisdom or trustworthiness, or it might be something that's ingrained in us culturally or you know through some societal norms. Both low and resonant are words that Melanie used to describe her father's broadcaster voice. So here's Melanie again remembering her father and his tone. That ability to seem trustworthy and honest. And um, my dad, <laughs> my dad somehow was able to create that sense of being um, totally honest, somebody you could believe, um, that he was somebody you could count on. He was, he had integrity, you know, and my father's voice was very beneficial to him in advancing his career because it was so low. And some people go as far as saying that there is just a general preference for lower pitches. But Dr. Flaherty says that it's a little more Goldilocks than that. It's more about the average pitch. There was actually a study by Bruckhurt and colleagues in 2010 that really looked at this. They averaged together a bunch of voices and they had listeners judge the attractiveness of those voices. And what they found was that all those voices together, the composite, was judged as being almost as attractive or more attractive than the most attractive voice in that set. There's lots of different reasons that we think this may be the case. It does produce a cleaner pitch because it smooths and enhances the harmonic. And another reason for that is because this voice composite is thought to be more like the average voice. And as humans, we tend to have a preference for average things in general. So an average pitched voice, a medium range of tonal variation. And the same studies have been done with faces, showing that we prefer an image of a face that is the result of averaging a bunch of faces together as opposed to any one individual alone. So maybe instead of a low-pitched voice, we should just strive to be average. But... It's a little bit of a different story for women. And um, Dr. Flaherty and I talked at some length back and forth about this. Uh, here's some of that conversation. People tend to have a more competent view of a female voice if it's lower in pitch. Now, that's different from attractiveness because judgments of attractiveness tend to prefer a higher pitch in females. And so then that provides for women a very small window where you are seen as competent but uh, also attractive, <laughs> but, you know, don't exactly. go too high-pitched, because if you're too high-pitched, then you're annoying. So. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, they have a very small window to operate. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, and I, what I've read is that reaching that level of annoyance is more likely to happen with the female voice because it is generally higher-pitched, and that actually has to do with the construction of the human ear, right? We are more sensitive to higher pitches, so our body sends that alarm signal of danger more quickly, relayed via pain, because those high-pitched sounds could actually damage the human ear when the low-pitched sounds are not going to damage it as quickly. Right, yeah, that's definitely the case, and it really has to do with the construction and the way that the whole ear is formed. And one critical part of the human ear is deep inside our heads, and it's called the cochlea. The cochlea is shaped like a snail, and you can kind of stretch out that snail, so you can kind of look at it across from the beginning to the end. And depending on the location, we have different types of 
hair cells there that are sensitive to different types of sound. Right. And so this snail that we can unroll, or I like to think of it as a cinnamon roll, when we roll it back up, the hair cells that are most sensitive to high frequencies, that's the section of the snail or the cinnamon roll that's closer to the outside world, more likely to be damaged by those high frequency sounds. Yes, exactly. It's it's like such a perfect metaphor for hmm, so much that women have to, like not too much, not too little, that women are required by cultural and social norms to, to squeeze into. I think it's, of course, unconscious until it's not, and you, you realize that you have power in one of those voices, and then you choose that one over the other, because that happens. Totally. So all of that is to say that there is a narrow window for the female voice to live, and there's some physiology behind it, but a good bit of social conditioning too, which we'll get to later. But the fact of the matter is that you don't have total control over your voice pitch. Much of it is determined by physical factors like your body size and hormones affecting literally how thick your vocal folds are and how fast they flap. So here's Mary to describe a little bit of that. You have air coming from your lungs that causes your vocal cords to vibrate and the speed that those vocal cords vibrate is what we refer to as fundamental frequency, which is the acoustic correlate of our voice pitch. Now, what you do have control over are the formants, which are concentrations of sound energy. And that can be altered by changing how tight your throat is, the shape of your mouth, or even your sinuses with the seasons. But it's not going to change the fundamental frequency of your voice. And so for women, because of various hormonal factors and body size, we generally do have higher pitched voices than men. But we're honestly not talking about a huge difference here. At most, a difference of about 300 hertz. And that would be taking the highest pitched female voice against the lowest male. In general, we're talking about just a 100 hertz difference, in general. That's interesting. And in the age of much more awareness of trans men and women, um, how, how that, how voice plays into presentation of gender, you know? It's really interesting. Absolutely. Depending on where you fall along the hormonal spectrum... That changes your voice, and there's way more overlap, it turns out, than is commonly expected. But nevertheless, that was used to keep women's voices off the airwaves in the early days of radio. That was the excuse. And here is Sean Van Cor again. Basically, technology is being used as a cultural screen to justify or reassert um, existing social hierarchies. There are disruptive capacities of radio, the capacity to move women into the public sphere, and they're being tamed through these cultural discourses that work to establish this truism that women's voices simply aren't well-suited for radio. And this plays out in the 20s through a course of several excessive studies. But these studies don't really stand up, in Sean's opinion. These were convenient findings, I think. In 1926, radio broadcast magazine's critic John Wallace said that women's voices didn't work on radio because women had uh, difficulty repressing their enthusiasm and maintaining the necessary reserve and objectivity. Those are quotes. And again, it's, it's, no, it's no accident that all the people on these committees are men. That's hilarious. <laughs> I know. As I, as I think about women on delivering news and information on on radio and television, seems to me, my hypothesis is that their voices are lower than the average woman's voice. Um, Somebody like Rachel Maddow. Mm, Yeah, that that might be true. And of course, we do have more women in broadcast now than we used to. But even in the early days of radio, there were some women in news broadcast. And I want to talk about one of those women. And she was part of what could have been seen as the ultimate boys club of broadcasting. Of course, I'm referring to the Murrow Boys, the group of World War II war correspondents recruited by Edward R. Murrow, the famed American broadcast journalist who we just, we can't talk about the American broadcaster voice without talking about Murrow. But the only female Murrow's boy in the original group was Mary Marvin Breckenridge Patterson. She went by Marvin. 
She went by Marvin Breckenridge to distinguish herself from her cousin by the same name and to avoid the prejudice that went along with being a female filmmaker and photojournalist, her career paths outside of being one of Murrow's boys. And here is a small clip of her voice reporting on a public appearance of Adolf Hitler. The large band of men in uniform walked rapidly down the center aisle. The third man, and only one without a clock, was Adolf Hitler. Murrow recruited her in London in the fall of 1939, and though she had never done radio before, it was her skills as a photographer and reporter that got her the job. And this is the thing that is so pertinent for our conversation, because we can't claim that the famed Edward R. Murrow was from the Midwest. He's from Polcat, North Carolina. But he started a trend of bringing on reporters for their academic credentials and skills other than their voice. And Murrow, you know, he got a lot of pushback for this, right? A lot of the higher-ups at CBS did not like this practice of hiring people if they didn't have an acceptable broadcast voice. But he started doing it. That's very interesting. It's kind of like it's a forerunner of what happened starting with public radio 40 years later. Right. Um, it was almost like foreshadowing. And so that was the big change, is that Murrow started recruiting people for a reason other than their vocal qualities. And it is worth mentioning that about half of the original Murrow boys were from the Midwest. Huh. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So uh, <laughs> support, supporting the theory. At least. And it was voices like Murrow and Eric Severide, one of the original boys from South Dakota, who led Americans through the McCarthy trials. And some say that the general mindset of the late 50s and 1960s of challenging norms and authority is eventually what ushered out that strange mid-Atlantic dialect to be replaced by voices hired for their academic and reporting skills, many of whom came from the Midwest. You're bringing it full circle. It, it is. I mean, I, I, I've always thought beyond as a, one of the things I've done um, just sort of uh, ritualistically as a Nebraskan ever since I left Nebraska was I, w I could recite the list of all of the public figures actors, broadcasters, and otherwise, who came there. And it, it just is a crazily disproportionate number. Now, whether that's because of the accents, I don't know. It's definitely real. It's definitely real. In one of Tom Brokaw's autobiographies, he mentions how, you know, in this part of the country, they didn't have TV as early as a lot of other parts of the country. And so radio was still like the thing for a little bit longer. So I don't know, maybe that has something to do with it. Well, exactly. And we're talking about these fairly brief periods of times where where the norms got created. I mean, in, in terms of television, you know, 19... 45 to 1955, uh, so that I, I can imagine that being true. And yet, we do have to bear in mind the, the concepts of reverse linguistic stereotyping, and it seems equally likely that education level, just as much as birthplace, has given rise to this radio voice, a broadcast voice that we are all so familiar with today. This is Melanie Workhoven again, remarking on that change that seems to have had its seeds planted by Murrow in World War II and at least bolstered by some Midwestern soil, though it took a few decades for it to catch on as a national trend. In his time, you had the guy who sat at the desk and read the news and helped write the news, and you had the guy who was out there in the flood at the shooting or whatever. And now we've changed that so that we have reporters out in the field and, of course, as the news cycle has expanded and is now 24 hours a day, there's a greater need for people who can do both. So it's interesting that our standards for presenting the news have shifted a little bit. And it makes me think about maybe one of the ways that news broadcast is changing currently uh, is uh, now we're seeing news broadcasters laugh. And I don't know if that's the political climate that we have right now, but I feel like you used to never see that. And that seems to be maybe the new shift on the horizon is admitting to a little bit of laughter in it all. 
It's funny. I was thinking the same thing. And and what it is, it it is the fuller range of human emotion rather than the kind of disembodied platonic ideal of father giving the news, you know? (laughs) And so, so, um, yeah, various kinds of emotion or performances of emotion are, are acceptable and encouraged in a way they never used to be. (laughs) <laughs> that is a very good metaphor for your father, the figure who, like, is authority, but he does not show emotion. It was your father giving the news, and now it's more like your brother or your sister, <laughs> who's yeah, still older exactly. than you, like, they still know better than you, but they're not, they're not dad. Yeah, or your, or your annoying brother-in-law, or whatever. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. <laughs> well, that wraps up our conversation about the American broadcaster voice. And I want to say thank you so much for your time today. Well, sure. My pleasure, really. And because we actually have not given you any example of a current Midwestern broadcaster voice on today's episode, I'm just going to play us out here by giving you our call letters from our station. So if you were to tune in to our radio station here in Omaha, Nebraska, today this is what it would sound like. You're listening to 91.5 KIOS-FM. Omaha Public Radio. You've been listening to Made in the Middle, How the Midwest Made America, a production of Omaha Public Radio. We'd like to thank our guest, Kurt Anderson, from Studio 360, as well as the Durham Museum for the archival photographs you can find on our website, Melanie Workhoven for sharing memories of her father, and doctors Laura Huang, Dennis Preston, Mary Flaherty, and Sean Vancour. Also, a big thank you to Myrtle and Cypress Coffee House in the Gifford Park neighborhood for hosting our preview party for this episode. This podcast was produced by me, Emily Chen Newton, Todd Hatton, and Joshua LeBur. The theme music, Castle on the Cumberland, was written and performed by Nathan Blake Lynn. Send us your listener comments on Facebook or Instagram. That's at KIOS Omaha. You might have noticed we mentioned just one minority broadcaster, Native American activist and reporter John Trudell. Minority voices are still underrepresented in news broadcast. So please send us your comments and help us keep the conversation going. And of course, you can leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes of Made in the Middle.